0: K-A-L-W.
1: I simply told people that I was going to work on protecting kelp forests. And obviously, a lot of my friends didn't understand that.
2: What does it mean to imagine the ocean when you're barred from seeing it or feeling it?
1: There's been moments where I question what I can do from in here as a prisoner. I have repeatedly been surprised and encouraged by how positively incarcerated people have responded.
2: We hear about an environmentalist fight for the planet from inside prison walls. Then one musician speaks on his love for the kalimba. There's a misconception that it's just a little toy or trinket and we drop in on a conversation about the challenges young people face.
0: I definitely was someone who was guilty of tying their identity to my academic success.
2: Talking about teen mental health, I'm Hanat Baba and this is CrossCurrents. Today we begin with a new story from our team at Uncuffed. Kelton O'Connor grew up hiking out to rugged beaches in Marin County. Being close to nature is one of the things he misses most inside San Quentin State Prison. It's easy to feel powerless in a cell, bombarded with news of climate change and natural disasters. But when Kelton read about the deterioration of kelp forests in the sea, he knew he had to help in any way he could. Uncuffed producer Brian Acey captured Kelton's story.
1: I grew up in the redwoods. I grew up here in Northern California. Nature is just deeply sacred. It's in my heart. So there were stages of me waking up to the devastation and how humanity has treated nature. And the death tolls and the hurricanes and the floods and the fires and a lot of people have the reflex of looking away and that's understandable. My reaction has always been the opposite. I've been like, I'm not gonna ignore it. I'm gonna look at it more closely. I want to find a way to solve problems. But at a certain point, the depression got to me, and there was a tipping point, and that was in 2020 when I was listening to the radio and I heard that we had lost 95% of our kelp forests in Northern California in eight years. For some reason, that was the, the straw that broke the camel's back. I simply told people that I was going to work on protecting kelp forests. And obviously, <laughs> a lot of my friends didn't understand that. Um, I'd been writing a book. I'd been engaged in some other areas of activism, like you know, criminal justice stuff, things you would expect a prisoner to be involved in the kelp forests, because that's that's really the first thing I started doing is I just started talking about kelp forests. I started talking about the importance of kelp forests to um, ocean ecology and the importance of kelp forests to the uh, carbon system, you know, and, and our climate and our atmosphere, which a lot of people just don't understand. I'll say, um, you know, when you see pictures like, you know, nature channels and there's the seals playing around underwater and they're swimming through these majestic, like, all these underwater plants, those are kelp forests, right? Where the otters live and and the seals play. And just like forests on land, they provide all of these different creatures, um, food and protection and safety. Protecting the kelp forests is part of protecting all sorts of other animals that, you know, that we know and love. What the scientists are saying is that the oceans will effectively die if they become too acidic. And when they die, they stop absorbing CO2 from the atmosphere. How do we prevent the oceans from becoming overly acidic, reaching that tipping point, and then dying and, you know, our climate system just spiraling out of control? Well, we increase the amount of plant life in them. There's been moments where I question what I can do from in here as a prisoner. What I've found is that I can do a lot from in here. I have repeatedly been surprised and encouraged by how positively incarcerated people have responded to this discussion and my message. So, as a result of all of this, I decided to co found a nonprofit organization with uh, a person I met in the free world who cared about these issues as well. And we started um, Earth Equity, and the project in Earth Equity related to ocean stewardship is called Sea Forester. So, what Sea Forester does is it provides uh, environmental justice curriculum to incarcerated people to help prepare people for um, entry into ocean stewardship career paths. We also now are working to establish a reentry program where we provide those career paths to returning citizens. Naturally, it's an area of work that in the past has been hard to get into, but because there's such a great need for people to do this work, You don't have to have a degree in marine biology to go out and work in the ocean doing something good for the oceans. And a lot of guys just say, where do I sign? How do I sign up for that? What can I do to make that a reality? There's guys in here who aren't getting out and they are so inspired to be part of getting other people those jobs. Incarcerated people have just as diverse opinions and interests as anybody in the free world. I don't think it should be that surprising. We're just as concerned as people outside of prison about the planet and our future and what's going on. When you first tell people that you're an incarcerated person and you're doing ocean stewardship, they don't really understand that. Incarcerated people have as many reasons to care about the environment as anybody on the streets. Environmental crises don't impact us less in here just because there's walls around us. That doesn't change the droughts, uh, heat waves. <laughs> the walls don't prevent the heat from coming in and giving us heat stroke like anybody else. <laughs> it doesn't change anything. The fact that we're behind these walls does not change how environmental crises and the climate crisis um, will affect us. We care about these things because we care about our children. For me, I've already screwed up as a parent really bad. Um, I'm not willing to screw up worse. You know, I'm not willing to continue to make terrible mistakes as a father, uh, even though I'm not in my son's life in the way that I would like to be right now. Um, I can still commit my life and the hours of my day to protecting his future. That's probably the single driving motive behind the work that I do. For me, being at San Quentin right on the water is certainly a little bit bittersweet. From time to time, I'll walk the two flights of stairs up to the fifth tier where everybody's working out. I'll walk down to the middle of the tier where it's a little bit quiet and, you know, lean lean against the rail and peer out through this Gotham-esque windows, these very tall, narrow windows that run five stories up. You can see through the bars and the grime out to the bay, see some boats. It's not a great view. Nobody in the free world would think of it even as a view. But for someone in here, it's actually, it's uplifting in a bittersweet way for someone who's been locked up for a long time. It's nice. It's nice to look out those windows and see the free world and the ocean and just know it's there.
2: That was Kelton O'Connor. His story was produced by Brian A.C. in the Uncuffed program at San Quentin. Our work in prisons is supported by the California Arts Council and the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. The producers fact check content to the best of their ability, and all content is approved by an information officer. You can hear more by going to our website, KELW.org, or subscribing to Uncuffed on your podcast player. You're listening to Cross Currents from KALW News. I'm Hannah Baba. Retired school teacher Carl Winters grew up in a musical family in San Antonio. In college, he gravitated towards the kalimba, an ancient instrument native to various cultures in Africa, from present-day Mozambique to Cameroon to Zimbabwe. The modern version of the instrument common today in the U.S. is a small wooden box with metal keys. KLW's Janae Darden spoke with Carl Winters, who's played kalimba in programs around the Bay Area, and the country.
3: Mr. Winters, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. You come from a musical family. I was reading that your uncles, they opened for Sam Cooke, the Five Blind Boys of Alabama, other gospel artists. Tell us what was that like, and how did that inspire you and inspire your music?
4: Yes, at a very young age, I used to see my uncles rehearse around the house. And they would rehearse every week. So I was privy to the rehearsals. And I was also privy to the stories they would tell because I was very, very young. Mm-hmm. It was always fascinating to hear them talk about opening up for the people that you mentioned Sam Cook and the Blind Boys of Alabama and the Blind Boys of Mississippi and numerous other gospel groups at that time. So that the bug bit me <laughs> at an early age. I said, hmm, I'd like to do this. How did the
3: kalimba come into your life? Like you were in college, you at HBCU, Texas Southern University. How did that instrument, that instrument all the way from Africa, come to you?
4: I know, I know. I saw Earth, Wind, and Fire, which is a household name. Yes, it is. As far as I'm concerned, the greatest group of all time. I saw them perform, and uh, the founder, Maurice White, who is no longer living, he was playing the kalimba. In the context of this great big band it uh, had about 10 musicians. But however, this instrument, even though it was small in size, he was really getting a lot of mileage out of it. And I was just fascinated by that concert. So the very next day, I bought a kalimba. I have 50 of them now. Over the years, I've collected them. So this is
3: the 70s, right? We're in the 70s now. Correct.
4: Right? 74, okay. the exact. And I just began to play, 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 play over the years. And uh, Within a decade, I became pretty good. So So
3: did you teach yourself or did you take classes?
4: That's a good question. I taught myself. I just, the old-fashioned way, I, I would just listen to records, start the needle over and over, wear out the record, train my ear, and play the song Note for Note.
3: you from Texas to California. So how'd you end up in the Bay?
4: Well, I I did have some family that had transitioned to the Bay Area at that time. Um, My favorite uncle lived here. He's no longer with us, but I just wanted to be around him. He was just such a cool guy. So I wanted Mm -hmm. to transfer my life to San Francisco, to the Bay Area. So I did that in uh, 91, 1991.
3: So was he one of the uncles in the group that opened for those different artists? Is this a different uncle?
4: Oh, yes. He was one of the premier leaders. As they say in church, he can wreck the joint. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah, it's Tragic that he was not discovered by a record company or vice versa. It's, it's tragic because he was really just dripping with talent. <laughs> Yeah. So he
3: could, as the church folks say, he could sing. He
4: could sing with an A, yes.
3: Okay, so tell us about the kalimba. Like, give us some history of it. Like, what have you
4: learned about it? There's a misconception that it's just a little toy or trinket. And there are toys and trinket kalimbas. Just like little kids play toy guitars at the age of four or five. Some people have the misconception, so I have to kind of demystify <laughs> that notion and let them know that it is a real instrument. Well, normally after I play a concert for 45 to 50 minutes doing jazz, blues and gospel, they become believers. They realize, oh, (laughs) this is not just a trinket or a toy. Normally I do this across the board. After I perform, I open up the floor for A QA period, and I also do a discussion and talk about how the instrument is used in the context of African countries. I'm talking spiritually, medicinally, socially. It's a legitimate bona fide instrument in African countries, some African countries.
3: Tell us a little bit about that, you know, the significance of it within different cultures in Africa.
4: Yeah, and uh, I will say that regionally, mainly we're talking about Sub Saharan Africa, Ghana, Nigeria, Cameroon. Kenya, Uganda, I think I said Tanzania, Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and not to mention Zimbabwe. So those are some of the countries that feature the instrument. In terms of uh, medicine, it, you know, music is medicine, and and they treat it as such in many of those countries. If you're sick, they just inundate you with the kalimba. They'll surround your bed with kalimba players, and they just play because music is. A healing force. As a matter of fact, there are some universities that offer music degrees that specialize in music therapy rather, but it's been done for centuries in Africa. So it's healing in that respect. It's also spiritual in that they play the kalimba to connect with their ancestors. It's also used in long journeys, foot journeys when, when they're walking. They're playing the kalimba to entertain themselves sometimes. It's used at weddings. Uh, it's used for baby naming. So socially, it comes into play in that respect. Something that I, I noticed that
3: you do is that you're not just playing the instrument alone. You play it to jazz beats, to gospel beats, to blues. Mm. So you infuse it into different
4: genres. Correct. And a lot of times, people don't understand that schism. They say, well, you're not playing African music. But first of all, I tell them, well... It all has African roots, Right, jazz, blues, gospel, <laughs> rock and roll. It all has African roots. Again, I'm from Texas, San Antonio, Texas, and then I transitioned to Houston. Down south, jazz, blues, and gospel, they're very prominent. That's all I heard. Juke joints, that was my experience. So those kinds of genres, were well, that was my exposure. And I'm an artist, so naturally I'm going to mimic what I hear. And that's what I was exposed to. Are you teaching?
3: Do you teach the kalimba?
4: You know, I offer lessons. From time to time, I'll get a student. But if like anything else, it takes practice. And I always warn the parents, because usually uh, it's a kid that's learning that uh, they're going to have to practice. It doesn't happen by magic. It's just like the violin or the piano. you got to practice, practice, practice. And when you finish practicing, guess what? That's when you really start to practice. (laughs) In other words, that's infinite.
2: That was Kalimba player Carl Winters speaking with KALW's Janae Darden. That interview was co-produced by Porfirio Rangel. Carl is performing tonight at the Eastmont Library in Oakland. We'll have all the details at KALW.org. This is Cross Currents. I'm Hena Baba. The past decade has seen a rise in youth mental illness. The National Alliance of Mental Illness says, as of 2020, one in five teenagers live with a severe mental disorder. And in 2021, the U.S. Surgeon General named teen mental health as one of the six national priorities. So today, we're bringing you an excerpt from a town hall KALW held that discusses this growing issue and the way teenagers are addressing it. We held the conversation at our pop-up event space at 220 Montgomery. It was moderated by freelance social justice journalist Lisa Ramreka. And in this excerpt, we'll hear from Carolina Quadros, a freshman at UC Berkeley, and Lushan Francis, Senior Director of Behavioral Health at Oakland-based nonprofit Children Now. We begin with Lushan describing the resistance she sometimes faces when talking about teen mental health.
5: One of the most common questions I get, and I remember I was doing an interview last year and the interviewer said to me, what's wrong with these kids? Why are all of them claiming, you know, they have hardships and mental health and my parents went through worse and they didn't have all these problems. And all these children are saying that they have all these mental health problems. Are they just soft? Actual question. And I said, well, the first thing is your parents were not okay. So... That let's, <laughs> let's actually be honest with ourselves, right? That our parents were not okay. That uncle that you had that couldn't seem to communicate without using his fist, that aunt that you had who couldn't seem to stop drinking and cursing, they were not okay. We just didn't have a language for it. So what we're seeing now is this emergence of being able to identify problems in our homes and in our communities and make the academic link. Some of that was already happening, right? So work about toxic stress has been happening for decades, but it has now recently been popularized. So for the first time, we are publicly talking about toxic stress. We're publicly talking about community trauma. When I was growing up, not that long ago, by the way, when I was growing up, you didn't, people didn't talk about mental health. You were either crazy or you weren't. Mm-hmm. That was it. That was the simplest language. It was like, oh, that Johnny over there is crazy. And that was it. So what you're seeing now are people are recognizing what is happening in their bodies, in their homes, in their communities. They're well-read. They're well-researched. And every time this question comes up, I say, oh, our young people know exactly what's going on. It's the adults that I have to educate. I'm spending more time talking to the adults about what's happening than the youth. The youth are clear. Trust me. We don't need to explain much to them. They know the impact social media is having on their health. They know the impact uh, schools uh, schools are having on their health, communities. They know when they want to see a, a psychiatrist or a doctor or a psychologist. They're clear on that. The conversations I have are muddling through the mess that adults have about mental health, getting them to think about it differently getting them to recognize the signs of distress in a young person, and that's the challenge. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Um, Can I go on to ask a bit more about what you
2: guys feel is working or has worked? Um, for you in your own sort of like areas of work Um, and maybe Caroline, we could pick up on the podcasting and if you could say a little bit more about how you got involved with podcasting that would be great because I know you gave us gave me
5: a really great sort of story before.
0: Um, Yeah so in terms of how I started podcasting I started the second semester of my sophomore year which was good old 2020 (laughs) Um, and I I was struggling a lot. Um, COVID was a very, very rough time. It was a rough time for me. It was a rough time for my family. Um, It was a rough time for my entire community. It was a rough time for all of us. Um, And I had a really difficult time in school. Um, Going to online school was very difficult to keep up with. um, But it also took a very big toll on my happiness and my health. And then being around your family all the time, especially if your family structure isn't necessarily perfect, um, can be very difficult. So after a semester, I ended up getting diagnosed with situational depression. And I was very lost. I was very... Confused, and I was very unhappy, Um, and so I worked a lot. And since at this point it was a little bit more talked about, um, I talked to my friends, I talked to my family, and um, eventually I ended up recovering a little bit and getting to a better headspace. And now we get to the second semester of my sophomore year, and. I decided I wanted to do something with what I had learned about what helped me feel a little bit better. So I started a podcast through my journalism program um, on, it was called, what was the name of it? It was called, like, it it was something really snappy and really corny, but it was about tips to help just your mental well-being. Um, Self-care share, that was the name of it. (laughs) And um, so I started just sharing small things that just anyone could implement through their life, whether their life was perfect or whether they were struggling a lot. Um, And this was actually one of the very few things that brought me joy during the pandemic. And so once we went back in person, I said, okay, I wanna keep doing this, I want to do more of this, and I want to keep sharing what I've learned about mental health. I wanna keep sharing um, what I have yet to learn, but will learn so that I can share it, and I wanna learn from others. Um, So I worked with KLW, I continued doing it um, in my high school, I've continued doing it now in my college, because unfortunately, as the years have gone on, the cases, mental health crises that I've seen have only escalated. I've only seen them more in my life. Um, I think spreading the information, talking about it, is more and more urgent, Um, and that's my plan. I'm going to continue to do that for as long as I can because I don't think there's ever going to be a point where we can just stop or where we need it less. I think it's just something that we should always implement.
2: Those were the voices of Carolina Quadros, a freshman at UC Berkeley, and Lucian Francis, Senior Director of Behavioral Health at Oakland-based nonprofit Children Now. You can listen to more KALW Town Hall Conversations at KALW.org 220 Montgomery. Tune in tomorrow morning at 11. We'll ask, what would you say in your love letter to San Francisco? Dear San Francisco,
0: thank you for welcoming a closeted gay boy from Alabama and giving me
4: the space and acceptance to be myself.
2: A new story from our series Culture Keepers tomorrow morning at 11. Today's Cross Currents team includes Sarah Jesse, Lina Najia Basuni, James Rowlands, Ganadijo Johnson, Victor Tentz, Shireen Adel, Lisa Morehouse, Angela Johnston, Sunni Khalid, and Ben Trefni. Our opening theme music is by the John Santos Quintet, as interpreted by Daoud Anthony. For Cross Currents, I'm Hannah Baba.